You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. So, I I grew up on the beautiful island of Jamaica with my grandmother, where life is a little bit different than it is here. Just a little bit, right? Well, one of the ways in which it was different was that children started traveling on their own a lot earlier than you do here. So I recall going to school on my own, leaving when it was still dark, to go to school in a different parish. Now my grandmother would give me uh, money to pay my bus fare back and forth. And I was so young that I didn't fully understand how money worked, you know? That there are many combinations to come up with a certain sum. So in my mind, there was this combination that I needed to get on the bus. She'd give me the same combination every day, some big, some small coins. And I'd make sure I had it when it was time to get on the bus. Or actually, in Jamaica, you would get on the bus and then a conductor would come through, which is kind of like, you know, your Amtrak train. So one day, I'm coming home from school, and I'm on the bus. You know, I probably bought a snow cone or two or something I shouldn't have bought. So I'm sitting on the bus, and it's time to pay my fare. And I pull out my coins, and I realize I don't have the right combination. So I freeze. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now? I don't have enough. So for some reason, in my small, young mind, I thought, well, the worst thing is to not have enough, right? So the best thing to do is to hide what you do have and say you don't have any, right? So I slip it onto my leg, and I sit there and wait for the conductor to come through nervously, and I say, I don't have, I don't have any money. I don't have any money to get home. Now, Jamaica is what sociologists would refer to as a Gemeinschaft kind of community, meaning It's not like New York where you can live next to somebody for years and you never know them, you never talk to them, you don't know what's going on in their life, and they don't really care, right? In Jamaica, people care. Everything that you do is their business. Everything that goes on in your life is their business as well. So, you know, I'm on this bus and suddenly it becomes everyone's business that I don't have my bus fare. And so there's a big, you know, chatter and everybody has to weigh in on what happens. But fortunately, at the end, since I was kind of small, they did let me ride. So, you know, we go on our way, and I'm feeling fully relieved that I've escaped, you know, a nightmare here. So we get to my stop, I get up, and guess what? I forgot that I'd stuck the money under my leg. (laughs) So I get up, and the rest of the bus sees this, and oh my gosh, you know, all breaks loose. People start talking, look, the girl lie, look on the seat, and you know. Jamaican dialect for she's a liar, basically. (laughs) So here they were feeling sorry for me, and I'm hiding the money under my leg, right? So on top of the fact that everybody gets in your business, they feel really compelled to tell your parents about any indiscretion you may have committed while you're out. So even though the bus stop is only a few yards away from my house, I tell you, by the time I got to the door, my grandmother knew. And there was a belt involved. And I'll leave it at that. If you grew up with corporal punishment, you knew what happened after that. So I got to contemplate my life after that. I had gone from being a good kid to now being a liar and possibly a thief, as the story goes. The story had been elaborated and told and retold, and I was just this awful kid now, you know, who just tried to get one over on everybody. I just, I just thought to myself, how did this happen? I was so good. Now I'm going to have to live this way for the rest of my life. So that's my story, Ben. 
Now, how do you feel about people who are exposed for doing something that seems obviously terrible? Social media has given us this great platform where we can weigh in, right? And we can all have an opinion, render lengthy opinions, and hand out justice when we're done. Now, what do you think about Lochte, for example? You know, have you tweeted about it? Have you commented? Have you issued what you, rendered what you think is the right punishment? Or, 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 or what, what the conclusion should be there? Well, could it be that we're eager to make a distinction between those who have fallen and ourselves, and that's the reason we're so busy commenting on all of this? Just a question I asked myself. Today we're going to look at a well-known story of a boy who really messed up. Uh, so now we saw the Bible version, but I'd ask you to please turn your, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, so that you can follow along as I talk about it. And first, as you do that, I'm going to talk about the context. At the be beginning of Luke 15, we find out that while, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners, regular people like us kind of, are hanging around Jesus, really eager to hear what he has to say, the religious elite, the Pharisees, are off in the corner grumbling and complaining. And why? Well, look at the people he's hanging out with. They're really bothered by this. Now, this parable is the third in a series of three parables. In the first parable in Luke 15, Jesus asks the Pharisees whether they wouldn't go after one lost sheep, even though they had 99 others. And then later on, right after that in verses 8 through 10, he talks about this woman who goes looking for this one lost coin and all the trouble she went through, and then once she found it, the big celebration she had after, all of which probably cost her more than this coin, right? And most people interp have interpreted these stories, at least in my, to my knowledge as I've grown up, as stories about how God rejoices when lost, one, sinner is lo one lost sinner is found. Another interpretation, however, is that these two parables are told before the one we're going to study to highlight the difference between how the Pharisees felt about their possessions and how they felt about people. So for their sheep, and for their coin, they would hunt high and low, and there's no place they wouldn't be willing to go. But for a, fa for a tax collector or any other sinner, sitting with them really was a problem. So now let's focus on this parable, the one you heard in the Bible. I want to fill in some deep details that I think will help us gain some insight into how the adults hearing it at the time would have heard it. First, I want to look at a slide uh, of the first 11, verses 11 to 22. I'm sorry, verses 11 to 20. Okay. So there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, feel, to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, contextually, now I just a few things I've learned about what the people listening to Jesus would have thought about the story. The Jews believed that God was going to bless his people in the land where they, were, where they had settled. So here in this story, the younger son who chooses to leave the land and go to a distant one clearly was not going to be blessed. He left the land, right? Secondly, the Jews believed that God was going to bless his people for obeying his law, and this included the necessity of living life that was very distinct, holy, from the heathens. This young man chose to leave the lifestyle that he was taught and go straight off to live with these people, these heathens. Surely he would not be blessed. Third, the Jewish law had specific instructions concerning the passing on of wealth from one generation to the next. It was designed to ensure that the inheritance of each family stayed within the family, and also so to make sure that the children would be able to take care of their parents when the parents were no longer able to do so. And I understand that for the younger son, he probably got a third of the estate because that was in accordance with Jewish law. The older son would have gotten two-thirds. So listening to this story, the Jews would have understood this son, first of all, took a part of his father's estate before his father even died. He went off, lost it, so he was now no longer going to be able to take care of his father when his father got older. And he, he has left his father in this precarious situation where he's now living with less than he should because he's taken it so early. Basically, this guy's a scoundrel. <laughs> Not only is he not going to be blessed, he's just the worst of the worst. But it does get worse. For an Israelite, nothing can be worse than going off and working for an heathen. Nothing can be worse than, well, the only thing worse than that is feeding their pigs. This son did even worse than that. He topped it all. He not only ended up working for a heathen, he took care of pigs and wanted to eat their food. So you can imagine, they understood that this guy had hit rock bottom. And we've heard about rock bottom, right? This was it. Now last, the, he talk, it talks about the process of him coming to his senses. They would have heard this as what we understood to be repentance. Basically, a coming to an understanding of his situation and, not, and an understanding of his father and then a change in his life. Now let's look at the father. He goes along with the son's request. He doesn't try to control him. Now, this would have struck them as odd in this society in which men really rule their families. So his father could have just said, no, you're not going. And that's it. But he allows him to go. And secondly, this father seems not only weak, but maybe even foolish. I'm a parent. Now, my kids ask me for things all the time. <laughs> and I certainly don't give it to them just because they asked. So why does his father do that? Now, the, the word prodigal means spending resources freely and recklessly, being wastefully extravagant. Now, last year, Jonathan did this story, did a message on this story, and he talked about the fact that, you know, we named this story the prodigal son, but you can really apply these characteristics to the father, because if you think about it, it seems like he wasted his own resources by giving it to his son. We've seen parents like this, right? And we've judged them, right? <laughs> so here's... Here's his father doing the same thing. Now let's look at verses 20 to 24. It says, but while the son was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So from this story, we can see that it appears that the father was waiting and hoping for his son to return. When that door closed and his son walked out, he didn't just shut the door behind him and think, okay, that, that chapter is done. He has now written his fate and sealed it. He never gave up on the son. He understood that this son's poor choice was not the end of the story. And lastly, the father welcomes his son back without reservations and without conditions. Now, once again, I'm a parent, and I just really could not imagine welcoming, him, him back, welcoming, welcoming my son back without at least one, I told you so. <laughs> and maybe two, three, maybe four or five conditions for coming back and living under my roof. But this, this father does none of that. He just thinks about the fact that he's back. Now let's look at the older son. Look at verse, starting in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now let's consider this, the perspective of this older son. He thought the way to his father's heart was by being in the right place and obeying all the rules. And we can understand that, right? The Pharisees probably thought the same things as they watched, listened to the story. He was a good boy, really good boy. So this does seem a little bit unfair, right? Until, that is, Jesus turns everyone's view of good and bad upside down, as he tended to do. The good son was not really that good because he, he did not understand grace. He and probably Jesus' listeners thought the younger brother deserved punishment, and he deserved a reward. Makes sense, right? Now, unlike with the other two parables, there's a cliffhanger to this parable. We're left wondering how the story ends. Does the son ever go in? Now, since this story is a parable, it's, you know, it's an allegorical story, and we should make sure we understand who the various characters represent. Uh, as the story we heard from the Bible says, the father represents God, albeit a very different view of God than the Pharisees had, and per perhaps maybe what we have. 
God does allow us to, to make our own choices, even bad ones. He never gives up. He doesn't close the door. And he actually waits for us to return. Not so that we can get the punishment we think we deserve, but so that we can get the grace we certainly didn't earn and could never, ever deserve. The youngest son represents the sinners that Jesus just insisted on hanging out with. He's, they're similar to this, the prodigal son. As I mentioned previously, I understand that Jesus' audience would have seen this whole process of the son coming to his senses as, a, as, a, as repentance. He changes his mind about who his father really is and what it's like to live under his roof and then makes changes. Note, he doesn't go home and say, Dad, I need some more money. I ran out. <laughs> you know that text you sent from college? Not looking at anyone. <laughs> the, the <laughs> send cash. <laughs> he didn't do any of that, right? <laughs> he actually re realized that what he was doing was wrong, and he got up, left what he was doing, and went home. <clears throat> Now let's look at the older son. He was intended to represent the Pharisees. You know those grumblers in his audience and probably the judges that we find in ourselves. So why is it so difficult to feel compassion for those who have messed up? Now, you know, I, sometimes I think to myself, if we allowed ourselves to feel compassion, maybe we would end up seeing a piece of ourselves in this person who's fallen, and maybe we don't want to see that. This is a theory. Just, just hold on to that thought. And let's look at why the company Jesus kept disturbed the religious elite so much. I think we can find clues to this in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus talks about various qualities that he saw in the Pharisees. I'm not going to read it, but I'll just highlight a few things Jesus said. He said that the Pharisees loved the, the place of honor at banquets. Think about that. In VIP tickets that coveted corner office that you may, be, may have your eye on. That's all they wanted. They just wanted the best. What's wrong with that, really? The Pharisees also loved to restrict the saved to the select few, the elite of Judaism. This is in Matthew 23, 13. They had this in-and-out perspective on the kingdom of God. I think we also like to put each other... We also like to put neat labels on each other's, and put, that, put each other in boxes. Everything in order, right? I know that it can really mess with my sense of order when I think that someone doesn't deserve something and they get something just wonderful. I'll give you an example. We just stopped, just finished watching the Olympics, right? And, the, you know, many amazing things happened there. I recall one day watching Michael Phelps win one of, you know, one of his, his swim heats, and thinking to myself, I remember the first time he came on the scene and just won everything. And everyone was just talking about his physical structure, all the things that made him this incredible swimmer. But I also remember how he messed up. And there are all those stories, and everybody had all their views on what was going to happen. And I remember the time thinking, I was so disappointed. You know, here he had everything. Why would you go out and do all these things? I mean, he just totally messed up. And in my mind, he was done. Totally done. <laughs> but I'm not a judger at all. So, so he's, you know, I'm watching the Olympics and I see him win. And I know it's a wonderful thing. This guy has gotten his life together. He's, done, he's doing wonderful things. And I think he got maybe four gold medals at this Olympic. 
But all I could think of was the way this guy had messed up and the fact that he's, his image was now tainted in my view because of whatever happened in between. And I think to myself, how about missing the, 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 the story of grace that Jesus was trying to teach us? That, that's such a big example of that. Okay, I've lost my place. Give me a minute. <laughs> Now, the other thing Jesus talked about with the Pharisees is that they loved to focus on technicalities. In verses 16 to 24, for example, they were very careful to obey all the rules of tithing. And I understand that it was actually pretty complicated. But they managed to ignore or, or overlook the more important matters of the law. And these are the more important matters for Jesus. Justice mercy and faithfulness. Now I remember the huge commotion it caused in the church that I grew up in when a woman came to church one day without a hat. <laughs> now you laugh, you think, so what, right? Well, in the church I grew up with, we took the scripture, well, everyone else did, I was just a kid, <laughs> took the scripture literally that women should not worship without, with their heads uncovered. So you had to wear a hat. So this woman, I don't know why she thought she could do this. Uh, she had this nice low-cut afro. It was hot. It is Jamaica after all. And she decided, no hat. So she came in, and I think she may have been new too. Maybe she came from foreign, like New York probably. And <laughs> here she's worshiping without a hat. Oh my gosh, the commotion. People talked about it all week, and she did it more than once. They just gossiped and talked. It was just, it was awful. Now, no one paid attention to the vicious manner in which this poor woman was slandered. There, were there was talk about what her life probably was like, that she would think she would worship without a hat. And no one, under no one thought about how she was slandered in the process. After all, complying with this head-covering rule, because it was in the Bible after all, was the most important thing. So maybe we have a little bit of the Pharisees in us, and then we give them a hard time. But I've definitely seen that in my own life. And lastly, Jesus talked about the fact that the Pharisees loved to focus on external sins rather than internal attitudes and motivations. There's a story in verse, he talks in verses 25 to 36 about them cleaning the outside of the cup and missing the point that if you take care of the inside, and I find this to be true too, you take care of the inside, the outside usually takes care of itself because it's going to be a reflection, right? Now, unfortunately, this accusation of, of, against the Pharisees is a quality that's often associated with Christians today. We're very, very focused on the external. So these Pharisees and we, in even in retelling and labeling this story as the prodigal son, I, I believe, fail to recognize that both of these sons were pretty much alike, just in different ways. Just as we are often more alike than the people that we look down on and see as fallen. I think that perhaps a better label for the story would be the immature sons. Because neither is good or bad, and both of them are on a journey. Both left their father at different times and in different ways, and both wasted the love he lavishly bestowed on them. Both of them distanced themselves from their father in their hearts. Both thought fun was in a separate, separate place away from him. Even the one who stayed home 
wanted to get a young goat and go off and celebrate with his friends. Neither realized that the key to the wealth that they were going to inherit from their father was, was being in his presence and in the depth of their relationship with him. Sadly, each one was focused more on the material things that they could get. Both of them, like the Pharisees, missed the point that Jesus' ministry was far, much more about building, saving, grace-filled relationships than espousing rules for who makes it or who doesn't make it. Into heaven, that is. The father was waiting for both sons to mature in their understanding of who he was. The only distinction between them was that one came to his senses and repented. We don't know what happened with the other son, but we do know one thing, the father waited. He was hoping that he would change. So what can we learn from the parable today? I can tell you what I learned. Who we are at any particular time in our lives does not merit a label. We are, we, who we are might simply be a measure of who we are, of where we are in the journey of understanding God. In other words, it can be a reflection of how mature we are or how mature others are when we're tempted to judge them. Line drawing and labeling are immature and reflect a lack of understanding about who God is and about who, are, who we are. These line drawing and labeling assume that we and others have arrived at an ultimate destination, good or bad. This was the difference between how the Pharisees saw the, the sinners who Jesus was hanging out with and how Jesus saw them. He actually saw them. A view that God is fine with everything he gives us, the freedom to do, particularly the things that cause us to distance ourselves from him and the peace that he wants for us is spiritually immature. As we learn from the parable, God will allow us to make choices, even bad ones, but he also wants us and waits long, longingly for us to come to our senses. I personally love the freedom that living under grace gives me. But it can be tempting just to take the path of least resistance and not discipline myself. Because of that, I try to be guided by a scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. It says that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Actually, in my version, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. For example, I can have that additional glass of wine, but should I? That's the question, right? Or I could say, make this, a disparaging comment about someone or even use foul language, but should I? I think that God expects us to use our freedom to figure out what's beneficial and then make those choices. That's the more mature path to take. Maturing in our understanding of God should be a goal for all of us, regardless of where we feel like we are. Whether it's close and in the right place, like, this older son did, like the older son felt like he was, or if we feel distant from God like the younger son, or anywhere in between. In my view, the ultimate goal of life and the source of its riches are to be found in a deep and abiding relationship with God, not in all the things we find ourselves striving for every day. Finally, a mature relationship with God is one that understands grace and compassion, both for ourselves and for others. Those are the things I learned. Now, I had a, an experience um, an, almost a year and a half ago that forced me to really examine and I would say grew up in my understanding of God. 
I got up one day for work. It was a day like any other. It, there were things to do, places to go, people to see, as they say. The only difference is that day I felt particularly tired and just, you know, off kilter. Couldn't figure out what it was. But in my typical style, rather than slowing down, I said to myself, you know, I have deadlines to meet. I have obligations to fulfill, and I just have to push through. So I even did my morning workout, even though I was, could barely do it, got ready and went to work. And I can tell you that by the end of that day, I found myself in an emergency room having a stroke that paralyzed the entire left side of my body. And I can also tell you that I felt like I got just, had just gotten struck by lightning. Initially, I think because of my relationship with God, I was able to feel some peace as they were telling me what was going on. But I can tell you that for the week that I spent in the ICU with monitors and everybody thinking it was going to happen again, I had some time to do some thinking. You know, the kind of thinking you do late at night when you're trying to fall asleep and you're going through your life? <laughs> that kind of thinking. I had a lot of time for that because I could not move from the bed for that entire time. And I can tell you what started taking over instead of that initial peace was this one thought that kept me fighting with feelings of anxiety and fear. God is punishing me. I must have done something that made him extremely mad. And I really believe this. And even though part of me felt like it was irrational, the other part felt like it was completely rational and true. Now, since my relationship with God is everything to me, this thought was devastating. I had to dig really deep to try to figure this out. This process was more difficult than you can imagine. I felt accused, judged, and sentenced. What had happened to me was the proof. Now, fortunately, God didn't leave me in that state. I went through the process of obviously praying a lot and studying my Bible. And stories like what we just studied today painted a very different picture, the picture of God than the one I had obviously come to believe. I realized that whether or not I had done something to deserve punishment was not even an issue. Our sinful state is a, is a universal fact. That's actually old news. The new, the new news and the good news, actually the gospel, is, that, is the news that Jesus delivered. He has lived and died to make sure that you and I can be confident about being fully and undoubtedly redeemed and loved by a Father who is not out to get us. Rather, he is waiting for us to get him. Imagine that. <laughs> He's waiting for us to come to our senses about him. Now, I think that maybe if we understood this better, it would be, it would be easier to have compassion on others and ourselves when we mess up. This process of combating my thoughts with the truth from the scriptures, I believe, forced me to do some growing up spiritually. It also exposed to me that despite many years of church going, I had managed to miss out on, a real, on the real understanding of who my grace-filled father is. What a surprise that came to me, because I've been going to church a long time. <laughs> so you see, this maturing process is important for many reasons, including the fact that bad things happen, to us and to the people, in our, to people we love in our lives. And the way we deal with them 
or choose to help other people will depend, will depend on how much we know God ourselves. We heard Mina's story during our t Together in this series concerning how some well-meaning Christians reacted to her telling them about her illness. Now, in case you were not here at that time during that service, one of the members of our forefront community, Mina, shared with us that when she first told her family that she had lymphoma, some of them asked her whether she had repented of her sins. The implication was that getting cancer was somehow her fault. Now, I have no doubt that they were very well-meaning. But if we, don't under <clears throat> if we don't understand our God well, we can make these similar mistakes and we end up making people feel guilty when we should be teaching them about the grace of God. So, as a church that strives to be a true and just expression of the Christian faith, how well we individually and as a community understand our Father and are living in relation to him obviously matters. Certainly does to me. So I encourage you to take some action today to invest in your own spiritual growth. For example, join a small group. Take steps to embrace community. I can't tell you how much it helped in my journey to experience grace and mercy in my interactions within this community. They made the concepts of grace and, 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 and mercy more than words on a page. So I encourage you to do the same thing. If you're wrestling with something, reach out for help. Ask for prayer. Take advantage of the opportunity to pray with someone. There's usually someone here after service. And allow others to walk with you on your journey. So finally, I just want to encourage us all. Let us hold each other accountable and strive together for our spiritual maturity. Let us pray. God in heaven, thank you for who you are. Thank you for knowing us so well and loving us in ways to which we can only aspire. Please make Jesus and his teachings be more than stories in a book or words in a page for us. Rather, please help us to absorb and embody your teachings, particularly as they relate to grace, mercy, and justice. These things I pray in your precious name. Amen.